Last week we had Easter. We um, celebrated our resurrected King Jesus. Uh, Soon after he was raised up, he ascended into heaven, and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So I thought it was a great time for us to enter into a series on Revelation to understand what Jesus is doing now and what it looks like for us to follow him as his servants in this world uh, as we seek to be faithful to him to the end. Uh, So in this series that we're going to be in, it's going to be divided into four different subsections. It's going to run about the rest of the whole year, although I'm going to take a break uh, during the summer and we're going to go through Ecclesiastes together. So, but we're going to be in Revelation for a while. It's a long book. Uh, So the four subsections, the first three chapters, which are starting today, is the seven churches. And so we'll get into the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, Then chapters four through seven, I'm calling that Our God Reigns. There's a lot of throne room pictures of Jesus and and the elders and all that's going on in that throne room. Then chapters eight through 18 is when it gets really interesting. I'm calling that Envisioning Apocalypse. Uh, There's about 10 weeks on uh, just some pictures that we don't normally get into. Uh, they're, they're pretty hard to understand, but we're going to try to understand those together. And then finally, 19 through 22, all things new. And so in this, this book of Revelation, you might wonder why am I preaching on Revelation of all the things I could be preaching on. Well, actually it goes back to a hike I had with my boys in Glacier National Park this last summer. We were, it was one of those glorious times. Uh, we were descending from the summit, and I had hours with my boys just to talk about whatever one of those conversations that it just meanders back and forth to different things. And somewhere along the way, uh, Jordan asked me, why have you never preached on Revelation? And, uh, and then Josh said, yeah, Dad, I don't feel like I understand the end times very well. Don't you think that'd be something that would be important to teach people about? So, you know, ouch, I thought. You know, and I responded, you know, I did do a series on heaven back in 2017. I'm not sure if you remember that. They confirmed they did not remember that series, so... Um, I barely remembered it myself. I had to go back and make sure I did preach on that. I did, I did. Um, but that was just kind of different, different pieces of Scripture, not necessarily focused on Revelation. Uh, as we went on, uh, Jordan said, you know, it seems like that it might be kind of scary to preach on Revelation. Dad, are you scared? Are you scared to preach on Revelation? And, uh, you know, honestly, yeah, I am a little bit scared to preach on Revelation. Uh, there's a lot in this book. Uh, There's some amazing passages, very straightforward. The application is very easy to make into life. And there's some passages that are head scratchers that Christians disagree on that are are very difficult to interpret. And so I told him, yeah, I was a little bit scared to preach on Revelation. And he went on to ask me, wait a minute, didn't you go to seminary? Didn't you get your your MDiv? Um, You know, and I got to explain to him, like I've explained to many people before, that getting an MDiv uh, the ma- to master the divine, uh, the way to end with an MDiv, if you're really learning, is to learn how much you still need to know about God, not how much you've already learned. And so when you encounter pastors or preachers that feel smug and arrogant about how much they know, they need to ask themselves how much did they learn in seminary, all right? So I approach this humbly with you. Why am I preaching on Revelation? One, it's for our children, all right? I know they're back in, the little ones are way back in, uh, children's church, you can teach them what I'm teaching, maybe. Um, but it's for those who are growing up in our church and want to know, what do I have to look forward to? What's it going to be like to follow Jesus? I want you to know. But it's not just for children, it's also for adults. And I think the adults have a greater danger than the kids. Uh, for the adults, there's been all kinds of movies and movements and writings that 
that they get kind of nerdy about Revelation. We, can, we like to nerd out in Revelation instead of actually thinking about what it really means for our life. Uh, the, the big message of Revelation is this. This is the big theme of Revelation. If you are with God, then you win. If you are with Satan, then you lose. There's a lot of good news to be found in Revelation. And I will get into some of those sub points and some of those debates about numbers and what did this mean, that mean. I'll do my best to try to explain it from my perspective, what I believe the Bible is saying. We're not going to avoid those passages. But I think there's a danger for you. If you want this to be a series where you get to nerd out in the details of Revelation, I can promise you I'm going to disappoint you. Feel free to ask me those questions if you want on your own. I'm not going to spend all of our time on the obscurities of the text when the basic themes of Revelation are very important and we need to focus on those for our own good and our spiritual development. So the danger would be to miss the big point of, of this. If you are with God, you win. If you're with Satan, you lose, which means that it's very important to be on the side that wins. It's very important to remain in our hearts loyal to Christ in the midst of everything we face in this world, to be on the winning side, to find yourself faithful to Christ to the end. Thank the Lord, it says in this passage, that he is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is faithful to us. He promises us that we will be able to persevere to the end, but that relationship we have with Christ, it's not something he does all by himself for us. We also have to participate in that faithfulness to Christ as we follow him. And this message of faithfulness to the end is so important in our day, is it not? As we in our times in the last 20 years have seen one leader, one Christian speaker, preacher, executive director just fall one by one away. It's been disillusioning. It's hard to grow up in the church right now. It's hard to see Christians bicker with one another over things. It's hard. But we have to remember that the most important thing for us in our lives is to be faithful to Christ. It is to be faithful to him. It's a question as a pastor I have had to wrestle with. Why are so many pastors that I grew up listening to their preaching, why have they fallen away? It's something that we all have to take account of. What does it look like for us to be faithful to the end? So I'm going to anchor my message, though it covers the whole passage this morning. I'm going to anchor my message just in one verse of the passage, which is a bit unusual for me, but... It's a passage, Revelation 1, 9, verse 9, that I think is a great theme for the book of Revelation. It shows the overarching theme. It also shows us uh, the reality of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ in real time, okay? So here's that verse for you. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why is this such an important verse? Well, for, for John, if you know about John's life, John and his brother James, somewhere along the way in the ministry of Jesus, they wanted the power. 
they wanted to be separate from others. They wanted to be separate from others by having such power over others that they would be like lords reigning over other people. Now John finds himself, not, yes, he's separate from others, but he's separate and he's in obscurity. He's living on an island reserved for prisoners. John's story was this. All of the other disciples at this point when he wrote Revelation have been martyred. All, all 11 of the other ones that have been raised up, besides Judas who killed himself. Everybody else had been martyred. Here he is in AD 90 or 100 on this island by himself. The emperor Domitian had tried to kill him. He tried to boil John in hot oil, a cauldron of oil. And John miraculously survived unscathed, and so they didn't know what to do with him. And so they put him on an island by himself where he's being guarded, this island called Patmos. He's there. He's gone from wanting power to wanting to be patient. He's gone from wanting to reign over others to being willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. What happened in him? What transformed John that he would say, I am here because of Jesus? This phrase the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus in Greek is one phrase. It's one phrase. It's, it's all one encompassing idea that when you get Jesus, when you get united with Christ, yes, you get your sins forgiven. Yes, you get new life in Christ. You also get this. You also get tribulation. You get a new king, and you get patient endurance they're all yours in Jesus Christ. Sometimes those are occasions for us when we question, does God love me if I'm suffering? If it's so hard to endure right now, does God still love me? The answer is yes. There is no time in your life when you should be more aware of your union with Christ than when you are suffering and needing to patiently endure for the gospel in this world. You are following the king. In that moment, you have joined the following of King Jesus. So I'm going to base this sermon on the three themes that emerge in that phrase, the kingdom, the suffering, and the perseverance that are ours in Jesus Christ. First of all, let's talk about lordship or the message of the kingdom. This answers the question, who are we faithful to? Who are we faithful to? Now, the fact that John says that Jesus is lord over a kingdom at all is an amazing statement. Remember where he is. He's on an island. He's, he's been banished. He's just, they just tried to kill him in a cauldron of hot oil. And he says there, I serve the king. I serve King Jesus. And I don't just serve a king. I serve the king whose kingdom is winning. I'm on the winning team. My king, my God is reigning. His confession gives us an incredible window into the nature of God's kingdom. So for John's readers, they would have seen everyday physical evidence of the power of Rome. The peak of Rome's power was at about 117 A.D. This was written about 100. Rome's power was the greatest the time had ever witnessed. They influenced everything from England to Spain, Egypt, Iraq, Switzerland, everything in between. It was a reign of power. If someone was a loyal citizen to Rome, it meant that they would be faithful to help the economy, submit to the political system, seek the peace and prosperity of the system, which meant worshiping the emperor, 
It meant following the emperor, whatever the emperor said goes, because that's how you build peace. That's how you get prosperity as a citizen of Rome. And so the allure of Roman power is something that is harped on throughout this this revelation that John has. Yes, this revelation in some ways transcends time, but revelation was written in the moment, in the height of Roman power. And Christian leaders were very worried about the power of Rome and emperor worship. There were great concerns from leaders in the Christian movement about what this would do to Christians. Because of this battle for the hearts and minds of God's people, John goes to great lengths to show that we serve a king who is reigning on the true throne, in the true throne room. And so he says in verse 4 and then again in verse 8, he's described God is as the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Each time he interestingly starts with who is. Because he's emphasizing the current reign of Christ. It's a past reign, yes. It's a future reign, yes. But it's a current reign. Verse 5 says that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Verse 6 goes on to say that he has made us a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. So there's no way you can read Revelation and think that our king isn't presently reigning. This is not just about a future reign. Yes, we're going to slowly go into the future reign of Christ. We're talking about the present, current reign of the true king. So Jesus is Lord may be the most concise description of the gospel. He is Lord right now. And of course, we live in a world, many people in our world deny his lordship. Uh, Many people do not live as if Christ is the true and current king. Christ, through his crucifixion and his resurrection, he's like a king who has, he has already, he has dealt the, the death blow to evil. And one day we will see all things made new. But we live in an in-between time. It reminds me of a conversation I had with my grandfather before he passed away. My grandfather served with the Allied forces in World War II. And he served in the winter of 1944 where it was very clear that Nazi power was dwindling, that Hitler's time was up. And they were, Hitler and the Germans were beginning to retreat back into Berlin, and they were slowly leaving the towns around Germany and going back into Berlin. And my grandfather led a group of four men that would go into these abandoned towns, and they would go in together, and they would seek to clear the town. Their message was this. If you were still in the town, there's a new ruler. Good news. You're no longer under Nazi power. If you're with the Nazis still... The Nazis would leave snipers behind, oftentimes in attics, to slow down the pursuit of the Allied forces into Berlin and to leave some semblance of an idea that the Nazis might be still in power there, even though they weren't. And so my grandfather's job with his team of these men was to go out and to clear out the snipers. And there was one such occasion where there was a sniper in an attic where they went, obviously they were being very careful, they knew the sniper was up there, But as soon as they opened the attic door, the sniper was there, and he began to shoot. So they shut the door quickly, and they they tried to figure out what to do. And so they began to to try to consider, he has to either surrender, or we have to kill him. Those are our two options. And my grandfather, he had killed other people in the war, and he hated the idea of, of killing people, obviously. And so he wanted to spare every life that he could. And so they pled with the Nazi sniper to surrender, and over a course of hours, I mean, if it was very dangerous, they could have been shot by the sniper, but the sniper actually relented, and they took him off as a prisoner 
of war. But this story shows me that there's this time, there's this in-between time where the good news is sure. The allied forces are going to win. And in this in-between time, there's good news that has to be shared, but it's dangerous to share that news because there's people that don't acknowledge the reign, the rightful reign of the true king. It shows us that we live in this time. We're proclaiming a a good message that the world needs to hear, but we're living in an in-between time. We need to humbly and urgently go out to our neighbors and nations around us and tell them of the king who has already come and who has a gracious reign. So the first question is, who are we serving? It's a message of lordship. Jesus Christ is the current reigning king. The second point here is that that John makes in his uh, verse 9 is the suffering that we have in Christ Jesus. The suffering we have in Christ Jesus. And suffering is a mark of the king, and so it's a mark of the kingdom. This answers the questions, what are the circumstances in which we have, called, we have been called to be faithful? What are the circumstances in which we have been called to be faithful? You know, one of the greatest knocks on Christianity um, is that if God was sovereign, then why would there still be suffering in the world? You know, the answer, the Christian answer to that question is that there is still suffering in the world. And because we serve the king who is a, who is a risen king, he is a reigning king, but he reigns as a slain lamb. He is not just a reigning king. He is a king who suffers. And so we as Christians, because we have eternal life and because we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we engage that suffering. Suffering is not just a question for intellectuals to pass around to each other in universities. Why is there still suffering in the world? It's, It's a question for us to engage with as Christians. Yes, there's still suffering in the world. That's the reality of this in-between time that we live in. And so we as Christians, because we have Christ, we follow him. What other, an answer could be, what other religion has a king, has a God, their, their Lord that they worship, who suffered? Who suffered on our behalf? What other heavenly vision do we have in any other religion where you have a king who reigns, who is one who has been slain? There is none. And so we as Christians, we, we, yes, we try to answer that question humbly, but we also answer it not just with words, but with action. We move into the suffering. That's what we do. And what is going on in this world today where we see the suffering? Physical pain. Let's talk about that. We have chronic pain. This is just common to everyone in the world because of the fallenness of this world. We have chronic pain. We have sickness. We have genetic brokenness. We have the deterioration of our bodies, pandemics, psychological disorders, overwhelming anxieties, finances that are falling short. We have the brokenness of relationships. We have the never-ending questions about why do we disagree on these things if we're all Christians. It's hard. Why? Why? How long, O Lord, we might ask. We, We experience these things in our church. Then we look out at the world and we see the suffering that's going on in this world. I looked these up this week, so these are all current statistics. In terms of food, there are currently 828 million people in the world who do not have adequate food. In terms of water, there are around 2 billion people in the world who do not have access to clean, safe drinking water. And this blew me away that 3.6 billion people, which is almost 50% of the world's population, lack 
adequate sanitation services. Refugees. In 2022, the world surpassed 100 million people who have been displaced from their homes. 32.5 million of those are outside of their own country, and so we consider them to be refugees. But the real number is 100 million who are displaced. Orphans. This one really got me. That uh, There's an estimated 153 million children worldwide who are orphans. And we can go on and we, we could talk about all kinds of other realities, such as slavery, 50 million people. I mean, the world is suffering. There's no doubt about it. And we can talk all we want about why is this still happening, but the reality is it is still happening. Why is the timeline what it is? It's in God's hands. But it's our call as followers of Jesus to engage with this suffering. That's, that's just physical pain. Let's talk about spiritual pain. So half of the people who have ever lived are alive right now. Believe that? What an opportunity for you and me and for the church. I don't, I don't think we're really taking advantage of that opportunity very well in general, but it's an incredible opportunity. Half of the images of God who have ever been alive are alive now. What an opportunity. The number of those people who don't know Jesus is between four and five billion. More than two billion are Muslim. I'm so glad we've prayed for the Muslim community during the month of Ramadan. One billion are Hindu, 400 million are Buddhist, about a billion hold to some form of secular religion, atheism, agnosticism, or something like that. And so in the midst of this, one verse that has resonated with me comes from Colossians 1.24. And it says that as God's people, as we follow the king, we fill up what is lacking with regard to Christ's afflictions. We fill up what is lacking with regard to Christ's afflictions. So what could that mean? Well, it cannot mean that Christ on the cross did not suffer enough to pay for our sins. That cannot be what it means. Christ suffered. He said it is finished. It is final. He has paid the price. What, is, what we are filling up with regard to Christ's afflictions, what is still lacking, is that there's still suffering in this world that Christ himself could not personally enter into. And so we as the church are called to fill up what is lacking with regard to Christ's affliction by going out and following him. On one hand, we find him to be in Revelations 4. We find him to be this reigning king where all of the elders are worshiping him. And it's this, this depiction of total sovereign power. And then in Revelation 5, it zooms in just a little bit more. And we see at the right hand of God, the Father, Jesus Christ, ruling as a lamb who has been slain. And so he bears on his hands and on his feet and on his side the markings of suffering as our resurrected king, showing us that his reign and his rule comes through suffering. It's the call of the church. Listen, the rest of the world doesn't have the promise of eternal life. We, you can lose your temporary life for the sake of Christ because you can never lose your eternal life in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you, and so we can engage, and we do engage in suffering. We both engage in the suffering that is common to everyone in this world, and we, we hold out the hope of the gospel as those who go out and extend the gospel of grace to those who are around us. It can be very tempting for us 
to embrace the call of our suburban culture, which the call is to consume and amass as much comfort and as much distance from suffering as you can possibly buy and possibly work hard enough to achieve. That is the gospel of carry. The gospel of Jesus Christ is you already have everything you need in me, and so you can willingly enter into hard places for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Revelation 6, 9 through 11, there's going to be a lot of talk about suffering and martyrdom and the tribulation that the Christians are going to go through in this book. In one of those passages in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, where it says, the saints who have been martyred are crying out to the, to the Lord day and night, saying, How long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And the Lord says to them to wait until the number of martyrs has been completed. Wow, really? I just got a text message this morning from a friend of mine in China who's a pastor who believes he'll be called in tomorrow morning. And we were texting about Revelation 1-9 together. Not texting, using secure messaging systems. Um, this is not theory. My friend said to me, if I were in other parts of China, I would probably already be in, but I'm not because I'm where I am in this little place. And that made me think, the only reason I'm not in jail and the only reason why some of you are not in jail is because of where you live. It's because of where you live. Thank God. I love that we have religious freedom in this country. That's awesome. But the only reason why this is a little bit hard for you to relate to is because we have it pretty easy here overall in the suburbs. We have a lot of freedom in America, which I'm thankful for, but we have an opportunity to willingly take all of that wealth and all of that power and all of those resources and all of that spiritual input you've gotten over the course of your life and to live for Christ instead of living for yourself. So let's talk about the third thing, the suffering that is ours in Christ Jesus. And then finally, the perseverance. This gets at the mentality of the kingdom. How can we remain faithful to the king even as we are suffering Revelation 1.5, as I said in the beginning, it tells us that Jesus is the faithful witness. So we look to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the faithful one. He was faithful to the end, and he's still faithful to us. And so we look to him. In some ways, yes, this is a call to, to action in the sense of, of suffering and following Jesus. On the other hand, the way to do that is simply by looking to Jesus Christ. We cannot take our eyes off of Jesus and just focus on the suffering. That's too much. It's too, too disheartening. The greater story is the one that Jesus is telling us, the true story that he is the reigning king. Listen, faithfulness would be easy if we had no adversaries. It would be so easy if, if there was no Satan. Uh, it would be easy if we didn't have still a sin nature, uh, the flesh that was still working against it. It would be easy if the world wasn't still conspiring against the Lord. If we didn't have the world, the flesh, or the devil, it would be a lot easier to follow Jesus Christ. You got to think about what, would it, what was it like for John? Think about the mental space that he needed to live in spiritually as he was boiled in hot oil, 
and he had one by one watched his best friends all die for Christ. And he is by himself exiled on an island. How tempting do you think it was for him at times? How many lies do you think were coming at him, telling him that? No, the real power is Rome. The real power is Rome, not Jesus. Don't you know the guards were saying it? Don't you know that he was being mocked like Jesus was? The temptation must have been incredible to give up and to shrink back from death. Revelation 12, 11 tells us this. It says that they overcame him, John writes, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. And don't you know that that he wrote that because he was tempted at times to shrink back. It is tempting to cover ourselves and to shrink back from suffering. But John must have been guarding his mind constantly to the voice of the evil one. He had to have his guard up to the, those lullabies that, that Satan plays in your mind about better possible worlds that you could live in if you didn't follow Jesus. One Saturday evening, C.S. Lewis in the 1930s was listening to the radio, and um, he was a smart man. He could understand German. And he was listening to a speech, a speech early in the 1930s by Adolf Hitler. And as he listened to Hitler, he was sitting in a wooden chair, C.S. Lewis was, and as he, as he listened to Hitler, he found himself digging his fingernails into the wooden chair that he was sitting in so that it left marks at the end of the speech. And what startled him and surprised him and worried him about Hitler is that Lewis found himself partially believing what Hitler was saying, even though he knew it to be evil. Because Hitler was so persuasive and so powerful and so charismatic as a leader that it worried Lewis. And so the next morning, so that was on Saturday morning, the next morning Lewis was sitting in church and he was bored out of his mind um, listening to the, the pastor preach. And Lewis actually, where he went to church, he would always sit behind this massive concrete column um, where the, the rector couldn't see him because he liked to write during sermons because um, he often received his greatest inspiration not from the preacher but uh, from, from other directions. And so um, anyway, so he was writing and he began his first manuscript that day for the screw tape letters because he began to wonder in the spiritual realms, why did the demons follow Hitler? I mean, why? Why do the demons follow Satan? He must be so charismatic. He must be so persuasive. And he began to write about that. We have to be on guard. There are all kinds of lies that you can believe about the worthiness of following Jesus, especially when you start suffering. When you start entering into human brokenness, when you start um, really loving people and entering into their grief, you start entering into conflict with other people that you love, and the pain that comes and all of that, there are times when you have to ask yourself the question, is it worth it? I mean, that's just a normal human question. How do we answer that question? The answer can't be, well, ultimately one day they'll see that I'm right. Ultimately one day maybe this will be successful. No, that, those are not answers that actually work. The working true answer is it's wor it, it's, it makes sense and it's a worthy endeavor because Christ is worthy. 
Christ is worthy, he's seated on the throne. And actually, if you wonder if because you're suffering, you ask yourself the question, does Jesus really love me because I'm suffering? Actually, that's, a, that's an occasion not for you to question whether or not Jesus loves you, but to understand that the suffering that you are undergoing because of your faithfulness to him shows how much he loves you. It's not an occasion to question your faith, but to be confirmed in your faith that because you, why? Because you are walking that Calvary road if you are suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a time for you to know that this is what I have received in my union with Christ. I follow a suffering king. This is why, I'm just going to be very direct, this is why the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is not just wrong, but it's evil. Okay, it's, it's evil because it's taking something that's completely untrue, that's not true of Jesus' life at all. It's, in fact, it's the antithesis of Jesus' life, and it's saying that this is what you will receive if you follow Jesus. Peace, prosperity, comfort, wealth. It's, it's totally ridiculous and wrong and evil. It's ev- we know it's not just wrong and ridiculous, but it's evil because so many people believe it. How can you read the Bible and hold on to the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Someone once told me that, well, I, the way I put it together, they said, is that Jesus suffered so I don't have to. Hmm. Well, you need to keep on reading the whole New Testament, man. The whole New Testament is about the people that follow Christ, they, they end up suffering for his name because we live in a world that does not acknowledge his rightful rule and his reign. The time for suffering in America is not over. I once heard a sermon when I was in high school uh, by a great preacher, E.V. Hill. Uh, He's a black preacher in Memphis. Um, He had come to Birmingham where I lived. He was preaching to um, a very affluent suburban church there. And um, his entire sermon was framed around two words, at ease. He kept on saying, you're at ease, fill in the blank church. You're You're at ease. Jesus gave you so much. Do you think he gave you so much so that you could use it all for yourselves? You're at ease in the suburbs. You need to be careful. He said over and over, you're at ease. And I I looked around and I thought, hmm. Even as an 18-year-old, I could see that was true. Uh, we We can be at ease. And yet, this is the time when we are not home yet. You know, Carrie is not your forever home. The triangle is not your forever home. Heaven is your forever home. You can't live as if you've made it there already. So in conclusion, what would it look like for us to live faithfully for Jesus in Cary and the Triangle area? And we'll be talking about this a good bit in this series. But, you know, I think it would change the way that we use our time. It would change the way we use our time. I think that we would pray more um, because I think that we would realize how many things are in God's sovereign control, but are out of our sovereign control. And the way we would enter into that would be prayer. Uh, Because we need the Lord to work in ways that we cannot give ourselves. I think we would be more willing to go and sit with people who grieve or sit with people who are in conflict with us. Because ultimately, if someone's grieving, we need to be there for them because they need the church in those, those times we need to give, sit with people who grieve. And I think if we're sitting with people in conflict, even if they have conflict with us, why? It's because the point is not about me or you, or like somebody winning and being right. 
The point is the glory of Jesus Christ. It's the unity of the church of Jesus Christ for his namesake. Therefore, we can endure all kinds of conversations, even if we disagree about certain things in the end. I think we would use our time to, to befriend our neighbors and our coworkers, uh, that we would make time for those conversations even when we're so busy. So it would change the way we use our time. I think it would change the way we use our resources. You know, I think that we, if, if you believe this is the true story and what really matters, I think that we would give very generously. You know, I, I don't know your finances, and so I'm just going to put it out there. I think that this type of belief and believing that really what matters in life is the kingdom of God coming on earth, it's got to change the way that you invest your money. I mean, it just does. I mean, to, to do mission work or to, to push back some of these realities in our world of suffering, it, it all takes money. And, and I think that we would be less concerned about our own rainy day funds when we realize that other people are already having a rainy day. So your rainy day fund is less, I mean, there's all these articles constantly on Apple News. I'm scrolling. There's, a, there's an article every day about how's your rainy day fund. Okay, cool. Yeah, so save, that's fine. But be less concerned about that than about the rainy day that everybody else is already having. Your retirement, you may or may not get there. Okay, I'm not against saving for retirement, but the obsession in America about retirement savings needs to be questioned, okay? It needs to be questioned because right now, not in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, however long you have, but right now there are people who need help. And so you needing help when you're 65, I mean, you just have to question the priority of it. Of course you save some, but let's not make that this like all-encompassing goal for life that it has become in America. I think, you know, in short, it will change your vision. If you embrace this view of Christ, it will change your vision for why you're alive. And that's why it's so dangerous. That's why my friend is probably going to get called in this week. um, Because it's dangerous. And because smart people in other countries and other governments know that it is. Because if you're willing to die for something, if you're willing to really live for something, and it's not what they're telling you that you should live for, like in Rome, like in Iran, like in Afghanistan, like in pick your country right now, it is dangerous because it sets you up as someone who is being primarily influenced by Jesus Christ and not by Caesar. And so it's dangerous because it will actually, if you, if you have a Lord and not just a Savior, then it changes these deep realities about how we live out our faith. So where's the hope in this? Well, the end of the story, the end of the story, let me remind you, is that God wins and Satan loses. God wins, and he wins, he wins really strong in the end. Revelation 24, 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God says, Behold, I am making all things new. These words are trustworthy and true. This is the truth. Jesus Christ is king. In the end, the very final words of Revelation are, Jesus says, Jesus the Lord says, I am coming soon. And don't you know John on the Isle of Patmos was saying with that, come Lord Jesus. 
You know, reading Revelation should make us by the end want to shout out, come Lord Jesus, come and reign, come and make this world new again. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that I'm part of this church that sincerely wants to follow you. You There are a number of churches in America where um, pastors get fired for preaching sermons like this um, because it's so countercultural and so counter our own little kingdoms. So I pray for us who, and all of us in some ways, Um, live our lives to build our own little kingdoms. And we even sometimes come to church to help build those little kingdoms. We treat you more like a butler sometimes than we do like a Lord. So, Father, I pray that you would forgive us. And I pray that you would dismantle those little kingdoms from our hearts so that we would serve you, the true king who is reigning in the true kingdom, so that we would be able to be faithful to the end as we behold you, our faithful witness, the one who is faithful and true. We look forward to seeing you on that day when you come again. We pray in Jesus' name.